Parents, just a quick note that today's sermon is not children appropriate, so kids, you are dismissed. A reading from Ecclesiastes 4, verses from 1, to 7 to 12. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or a brother, and though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things, this too is futile and miserable task. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm, but how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, Two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the end of this series on idols, we are, we are patently aware that you warn us against idolatry throughout the scriptures. You seem to care very deeply about where our greatest heart's affections are, God, you care about the things that we pursue, the things that we prioritize, the things that we protect. And so, God, I pray that as we talk about this issue, these issues today of both marriage and singleness and how to see them through your eyes, how to see them through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of your heart. Father, I pray that even with some hard things that we may have to hear, that we have to see, that we have to feel and experience, God, I pray that we would experience you. I pray that you would, scales on our eyes that need to fall away, will you knock them off? God, I pray that we would have nothing else that we would see but you. So God, the things that we're clinging to with a closed fist, open our hands. The things that we don't clasp too quickly enough, I pray that you would close our fists around those. Let us know the things that are primary the things that are your heart, and move everything else to the side. God, we want no other God but you in our life. Let that happen today through the power of your spirit, the illumination of your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Mowage. Mowage is what brings us together today. Mowage, this blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream, and wav, tu wav. We farewell you forever and ever. So tweja, you wav. Y'all know what that's from, right? I promise I didn't just jump into an <coughs> impediment all of a sudden. We know, <laughs> we know, we know this uh, uh, classic story from the Princess Bride. It's a classic clip. We talk about marriage, and, and it's funny, but it's something we all can connect with on some level, right? Because marriage is a topic that is brought up in our lives seemingly more often than any other. Like Jen reminded us last week, when you're single, you may often be encouraged to be married or questioned why you aren't. Maybe you long for it. Maybe you're patiently or impatiently waiting for it to happen. Or maybe you cringe at the idea of giving up your freedom and prefer the single life. Or if you're married, 
You're hoping to stay married and hopefully to do that well. In other cases, maybe you've been in difficult, painful, or abusive marriages, and you're just trying to figure out whether to stay or whether to leave. Regardless of whether or not you are committed in marriage, whether or not you're uh, single, marriage takes up a substantial amount of real estate in the minds of most, if not everyone in this room, at some point in our lives. It's something that goes through our minds, we think for, we plan for, we invest in, we spend energy giving uh, ourselves and our minds and, uh, to, to this idea of marriage. And that is not necessarily bad. None of these things are, are bad things. Relationship decisions uh, bring some of the greatest rewards and or some of the gravest consequences in your life. I've been saying this to my daughter a lot uh, right now, and I could have her come up, but I don't want to embarrass her, but I tell her this often. There are three things that will affect your life more than anything else. Three things. What you bury, what you carry, and who you marry. There, you, can, you can identify other things that are challenges and other things that can be hard, but those three things, what you bury, the things that you push down that you probably shouldn't, what you're carrying, the things you're lifting that you should not be holding, and who you marry, the one who's supposed to help you with both. These are some of the most important decisions we make in our lives. So it makes sense that we spend a lot of time thinking about it, preparing for it, and even engaging in what it means to either be single or married. But, but here's, here's the thing. What if our views of companionship, specifically marriage, is idolized in a way that harms us or harms others? What if the way that you think about marriage is actually defined in a way that may not necessarily be prescribed in Scripture. But now you have this idea of what marriage should be and what it should bring. And so now there's this idealized view of marriage. And that view can become an idol so that if you don't get it, where's your heart? There's, there's something else here. We have to figure out what is it then? How am I supposed to view marriage? What if I'm viewing it improperly? What if my idea of marriage or my idea of singleness is inadequately defined, but I still hold it as the standard of what should be attained? Here's an example. This is something, I'm going to walk through some things here, and I promise it, it, it may step on a lot of our toes when we think about marriage and the way we think we define it. When you hear this phrase, biblical marriage, that's all I need to say. When somebody says, I just believe in the biblical concept of marriage. Okay, that, that's great. That's awesome. What is that? Yeah, y'all waiting. Come on. What is biblical marriage? Now, there are responses quick and ready we can give because most of the time, especially within what you would call evangelical spaces or even outside of that, there are these kind of, kind of pre-worked, kind of fabricated uh, responses very quickly. This is what marriage should be. This is what marriage looks like. We have tons of books on it. Gospel-centered marriage, true marriage, every man's marriage, every woman's marriage, every dog walker's marriage. You just name it. We got something for you. So what is biblical marriage? Well, outside of what we have had curated for us, we can go right into the text. But when you go to the text, you have to look at every form of marriage you see in the scripture to answer this question. We can't just <laughs> cherry pick the ones that we like and then go, that's it, that's the one. So let's look. I'm going to look at eight different types of marriage we see in scripture. 
And the reason why I want to do this, trust me, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you want to be uh, single or whether you want to be married, it's vitally important that you understand what these are to make sure I don't have an idol set up as marriage in my mind or in my heart. Because if I'm racing after that, I'm probably seeking after myself, but I don't, I don't know it. I'm probably seeking self without realizing it. You can go into marriage seeking self. You can go into singleness seeking self. First example of marriage in scripture I'll bring up, one, that we're, one with, with which we are all familiar, what we would call the nuclear family, which is great. Again, not bad at all. Genesis 2, we see the example. You might call this kind of the man plus woman marriage. Gen- generally, in, in, in throughout scripture, those marriages were arranged. Generally, within, uh, in scripture, those marriages were not consensual on behalf of the woman. Uh, most of those marriages were not romantic per se. Uh, And on top of that, those marriages, if the bride failed to prove her virginity, she was stoned. Biblical marriage. (laughs) Second case of marriage. This is a marriage called leveret marriage. Comes from the Latin word levere, meaning uh, brother. This is a marriage where within uh, God's law, within the Israeli people, the Israelite people, If you were a woman and you had already been arranged to marry one man and that man died, you were now pledged to marry his brother. Biblical marriage, women, y'all ready? (laughs) Think about the man you married to and think about his brother. Some of y'all don't need to do that because y'all are like, I kind of wish. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm not trying to cause no more issues. But, but imagine now, those were situations where that was, that was within the context of this godly community. And if you had happened to be in a situation where the man that, let's just say you got lucky and you happened to be with someone that you genuinely wanted, that you genuinely loved, and they chose you, and so you could be arranged and pledged to them, and then they die. There's no more choice on your part. You've got to go marry the no-good brother-in-law. You see that in Genesis 38. See an example. Uh, we, we actually preach through it. Several cases where women are pledged. They have to do so. You got a third example. This is what we would probably call polygamous marriage, but we need to be more specific because polygamy is very general. It just simply means multiple spouses. It can be man with multiple uh, women or women with multiple husbands, but we got to be more specific. Actually, you have a word called polygynous, which is actually more specific. It means a man with multiple wives. I would go the other way, right, polyandrous, but the problem is there aren't many examples of a woman with a bunch of husbands. You don't see that in Scripture. So you, you can't look at that example. Although there are some throughout history, you don't see it here. But what you do see are examples where you have... The first one we said, man and woman. Second one, man and brother's widow. <laughs> so, so, uh, third one, uh, this, this, this polygenous kind of thing, which is married, kind of a man plus wives. That's just man and wife, man and wives. We see plenty of those examples in Scripture, do we not? We see Lamech had two wives. Esau had three. Jacob had two. Asher had two. Gideon had many. Elkanah had two. David had many. Solomon had 700 plus 300 concubines. We'll talk about that in a minute. Rehoboam had three. Abijah had 14. Jehoram, Josiah, Ahab, Jehoiakim, Belshazzar. Biblical marriage? Okay, we're not there. Okay, okay. We'll find another one. Then we'll get uh, even more, uh, we, 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 we pro- almost have kind of what we just said before, polygyny, except now this is polygyny plus, I'll call that a polygyny plus marriage, right? So you got polygyny, you got a bunch of wives, plus some concubines. 
You say no thanks, of course. I mean, you're the, if, I wouldn't say what you would be, but I'm just saying, <laughs> women would never want that, of course. Polygyny. So you got polygyny, you got all these different wives, plus a bunch of concubines. These concubines, were, they were pledged to this man, but they still were a step below the other wives who had some additional privileges, but you had no choice, because again, this wasn't consensual, was it not? So you've got several examples uh, like this. Abraham had two concubines. Gideon had one. Nahor had one. Jacob had one. Eliphaz had one. Caleb had two. Manasseh had one. Solomon had 300. Belshazzar had at least one, possibly more. Are we up for biblical marriage yet? Okay, all right. How about this? This is called the nuclear plus marriage. Okay, so you got man and woman. Okay, awesome. That's kind of the traditional thing. We got it. But this time it's man plus woman, plus the woman's property, which happens to be her servant. That's, that's marriage in the Bible, y'all. We see it. It's very uh, laid out very specifically. You see it in Genesis 16. Man could take ownership of his wife's servant as his own concubine. We saw that situation bear out with Abraham and Sarah with what? Her maidservant, Hagar, right? Hagar had no choice in the matter, did she? She, that she just had to go and be what she was called to, told to go be. Biblical marriage. It's a marriage that's in the scriptures. And here's the thing. As we keep going, please, I know some of us are going to go, well, yeah, but, you know, it wasn't like God told them or it wasn't like that was it. Okay, that's fine. But keep in mind something. Any place in scripture where you see God's people disobeying his edict or decree, he specifically calls them out on it, does he not? Anytime that God, this is where it gets hard and murky. This, this gets difficult. One of the things we try to do with this church, we try not to avoid these hard topics because oftentimes what churches are going to do, what I've been trained to do, is to just skim over these very hard intellectual conversations, but we can't do that. And I'll tell you why in a minute, because there are people being hurt by our false understanding of marriage, specifically women, are being hurt by our false understanding of marriage. So save the hollow platitudes on marriage, y'all. We've got to get specific here. Is this the marriage that, we, that we're looking for? Is this the marriage that we, that we see? Because over and over again, we're seeing these marriages, and you don't see not scant one word about anybody calling them out for the faultiness of the structure. You're going to see other situations where they do call things out having nothing to do with, and by the way, you also have multiple wives. That doesn't come out. It's the type of wives that they had that becomes the problem. So you've got this example, nuclear plus marriage, right? Man and woman, woman's property. There's a sixth type. This one is actually even more heartbreaking. This is what you might call the victim marriage. You see this in Deuteronomy 22. This was a law that was laid out amongst God's people. If there was a virgin who had been assaulted or raped, she was forced to marry her rapist. Biblical marriage. There was, it, was, it was by law. I didn't have any choice. Uh, if uh, a woman had been assaulted by a man and she was not married, uh, the man had to pay the father, 50 shekels of silver for property loss. Now, today we have that in the world. It exists amongst a whole conti- uh, different group of people. It's known as Sharia law. It's really interesting when we can identify the victims outside of our tent while overlooking the victims in our own. See, it's really easy to go, that's horrible over there. You don't realize that's an example of marriage in the very book that we're looking to for truth, to be able to understand marriage. So I'm not saying the answers are easy, but we can't just create these faulty kind of arbitrary definitions here. We've got to get deep. 
So you've got these situations, this idea of, 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 of marriage where people are actually suffering. Seventh type of marriage. This is what you might call the POW marriage. <laughs> Some of y'all think it's something else. Some of y'all feel like a POW. This is not it, though. I promise. POW marriage. Situations where a soldier marries a prisoner of war. The, the, the female prisoner of war is forced to marry her caster. We see this, actually. We see this uh, in, in, in both Numbers 31 and Deuteronomy 21. In Numbers 31, if you recall, Moses commanded, right, under God's command, commanded the Israelites to kill every Midianite man, woman, and child, except for virgin girls who had been taken as spoils of war. 32,000 of them specifically were spared and given a month to mourn the loss of their families, to mourn the loss of their freedom. They shaved their heads in mourning. And then after 30 days, they had to report for duty as wives to their captors. Biblical marriage? What do we mean when we, when we say this? And finally, eighth type. Uh, you saw this, not as much, but you see it in one example in Scripture. We know that it happened. This is known as kind of the slave marriage overall. And here's what we mean. A male <laughs> slave could be, uh, could be married off to a female slave elsewhere, and then they were forcibly put together. Now, this didn't happen as often, but you do see it in Exodus 21. A slave owner could just assign a female slave to one of his male slaves as a wife with the hope of producing offspring. We saw that actually that was more what we saw within chattel slavery here in this country. Israel, here's something that you might need to think about, though, which is also interesting about this. I didn't think about it until this week. When you've got that type of slave marriage that happened back in the Old Testament, I don't know if you realize this, but if you were a male slave under is, is, uh, the kind of Israelite code, right? If you lived amongst the law, there was, we all know this, uh, every seven years was the year of Jubilee, right? Every seven years, you were able to be uh, relieved of your debt. You were relieved of your slavery. You were freed. Guess who weren't freed? Women. So if you, as a woman, were married to a man that you were forced to, and that man was forced to marry you as well, after seven years, he could leave and go get his freedom. You were stuck there in the same place with the children that were left with you, and you have no other recourse. You're just there. Who's up for biblical marriage? <coughs> See, when we talk about biblical marriage, we, got, we throw phrases like biblical out there as if there was some intention of prescribing an institution to you. And I'm, we're going to get to what's really being prescribed, but it's not necessarily this type of institution. Here's why. When somebody says, listen, I just believe in biblical marriage, respond with which one? Which one? Because in every one of these cases, there are major question marks. Now, I get it. I get it. The reason why they're question marks is because we exist with completely different ethics than they did back then. And I'll grant that. <laughs> There are ideas of individual rights and liberties that we have as Western American Christians that someone in, in, in 3500 BC would not have had in the middle of Pal ancient Palestine, right? So, so we get that. We, we understand that there may have been a different idea of, of rights, but here's the deal. If you know that, then you're admitting already that we have to take account, we have to take context into account whenever we read these things. But that's not what we do as lazy Christians. We skip the context and we throw the structure on people. That's what we do. Well, forget all that other stuff. Here's the part of the structure that we like, so we're going to hold on to that. That's the marriage that I want. So you're already doing your own interpreting. 
So let's just call it what it is. We have to take scripture, look at scripture, and don't divorce it from context. So, so ultimately then, there is no real, right, if we really get down to it, there is no real prescribed, if you, if you will, prescribed institution. God doesn't necessarily prescribe because, because if the first one, the Genesis 2 one, was prescribed, then every time somebody went to go get a second wife, God would have said, hold up. Remember what I told Adam, right? Hold up. Back, back up for a minute. You, you, you're not getting ready to go get that, that, that servant, are you? Wait, you realize that this doesn't image me well, right? But it, we, we don't see that. Not saying that it's easy. Not saying I have all the answers as to why that's there. What I'm saying is we should not act as if it's always been a consistent thread of what biblical marriage looked like. Because it hasn't. Now, what, what, what you see further when you look throughout uh, <clears throat> history is this. And this is unavoidable. In every one of these cases, women were property. Every single one of these cases, women were property. That was the ethic of the day. Whether right, whether wrong, that was the ethic of the day. So if we're going to try to apply things from a time, a standard from a time, a principle, a law, a statute from a time when women were property, you're going to have a lot of problems. You're going to be stuck putting new wine in old wineskins. It's just not going to fit. So we got to do more work. So women, let me ask you, out of all of these, which one of these is the ideal biblical marriage for you? It's rhetorical. It's not the price is right. You're going to start throwing out. <laughs> in none of these cases, too, here's the other thing. In none of these cases are the consent of women taken, taken into account, right? Again, this is the ethic we have now, so we've got to deal with that. How, if we, we realize that all the scripture is profitable for truth and correcting and godliness, right? These are the things that we need. So how do we take that? and apply it to us now, it's not a one-to-one ratio. It doesn't fit perfectly. It's not A to A or B to B. There's work that we have to do. So instead of just copying the institution or copying the way things look, we probably need to get deeper down to the heart of where God wants us, not just into marriage, but in relationships as a whole. That's kind of where we need to go. Because we're not going to find anything that just goes, and from here on out, here's how marriage should look. Listen, Jen brought this up so well last week. Almost every single marriage that you look at in in, in Scripture, when it comes down to what that meant for women, it's not good. I used to always have a hard time, even though there's good stuff in there, Song of Solomon, right? That is always like the the books, like kind of PG-13, a little bit of R in there. You know, that's the book for love and romance and all these different things, and it's so great, and nobody really does a series through Song of Solomon because you got to hide your kids and all of that stuff. But, but, but here's what's always frustrated me about Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is super romantic, right? It's about the love between a man and one of his 1,000 wives slash concubines. What do you do with that? Well, we're let, we have to be able to, most of us a lot of times don't even know that, so we just assume this is this super romantic love letter between uh, one exclusive partner and another exclusive partner, but that's not what it is. So again, what is biblical marriage? This is just marriages that you respect that you see in the Bible? Is it just uh, marriages that, that, that maybe you can identify with the character there? So that goes, okay, that's the marriage that I want. We've preached on this before. We love talking about, I want to be a daughter of Sarah. Nobody's ever said, I want to be a daughter of Hagar. Why? 
Oh, that's not the marriage that you like. Oh, okay. So now you've got this idea because you picked out which verses you like and which marriages you like, and now that's the one that you actually prefer. That's the one you start giving as advice to other people. Hey, this is the kind of, this is the marriage that you want. This is the marriage. I was able to emulate this marriage that I liked in the Bible, so this is the one that I want. Let's go to another thing. Not only was consent not taken into account back then, in none of these cases, but as a matter of fact, consent for women in marriage has only been protected for just under 50 years in this country. Up until 1970, rape laws in every state in this country provided an exception if the rapist and the victim were husband and wife. It's known as the marital rape exception. For the longest time, if a woman claimed to have been assaulted by her husband, that was considered not possible. Was not, could not be. The law wouldn't even acknowledge it. 1970, you started seeing the first few states. It was not until 1993 that every state abolished the marital rape exception. Why? Because, because we still were defining marriage, weren't we? It's always been a moving target. It's never just been this one hard and fast thing. Now, there are principles we'll talk about in a minute that have always been true, but this structure, how it manifests itself, you don't find a consistent thread. The only way you do it is when you play biblical gymnastics by taking a passage, see the love, see the commitment, cut out all the other stuff, and say, that's the marriage that we like. Now, we would say that's lazy in any other topic in Scripture. We would say that that's irresponsible handling of the text in any other place in Scripture. But for some reason, when it comes to marriage, we don't do that. I have a theory. I think that one of the reasons why we don't do this is because, as good Christians, American Christians, marriage has been one of our branding points. It's, we, we help our branding by convincing people that our view of marriage and our way of doing marriage is going to lead to more happiness. But we don't know what to do with the fact that our divorce rates are the same. So now what do we do? Well, we turn it into, you know what it is? It's just that, that people, that people uh, don't respect marriage enough like they used to. Like when? <laughs> like when? Oh, just because people were forced to be in a situation doesn't mean they wanted to be there anymore. And, and frankly, when you look at younger people who watch their parents be in these uh, unhealthy environments, it's no shock that people would go, don't sign me up for that. Don't sign me up for that. Because I've, I know what you're telling me it's supposed to be, but I'm also seeing what it actually is, and I'm hearing no one put language to this. And since I can't reconcile this seeming kind of disc, discord amongst this, I'm just going to stand back and wait. I'm good. And then we get to now start indicting their character as if there's just something wrong with you because you don't want to get That's what we'll do to single people. There, there must be something wrong if you don't want to be married. Something must be off. Why? Because marriage is this, and marriage is this, and marriage is that. And so it must be all of these different things. And, and, and what's, what's, sad is, what's sad is this, and this is something that we've got to be really careful about. We have to stop idolizing marriage. We have to stop making it an idol. We have to stop making it like the end-all, be-all. And I'll tell you what that looks like, but, but we've got to be careful not to make this, this ultimate God. We, we idolize it, marriage as some ideal that has always meant the same thing throughout biblical history, and it hasn't. It, it, it means that we also need to reconsider what we are called to relationally. 
See, really, whether you're married or whether you're single, you still have the same relational questions you have to ask yourself. To what am I actually called? What, 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 am, I, what am I called to? Am I, am, am I called to singleness? Am I called to marriage? I think we need to be careful with that language. Because the only thing we see in scripture is, you are called to relationships. Whether you're married or whether you're single, your calling is to relationships. So to the degree that your singleness enables you to engage relationships, then you're doing what God's called you to do. To the degree that your marriage allows you to engage relationships, then you're doing what God's called you to do. Anytime your singleness or your marriage precludes you from being in actual healthy relationships, you've probably made that an idol. Your marriage or your singleness, you've made into an idol. Think about what we just saw in Ecclesiastes 4. Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 12, basically says this. Life without companionship, life without relationship, renders life futile, renders life meaningless. This is not necessarily a call to marriage. We've seen this all the time. We see that passage, it gets cut and clipped. Cut it out, clip it off. Okay, gay, hey, listen, uh, you're not supposed to be uh, by yourself. You know, this, this is what God meant when you're not supposed to be alone. But here's how we know that this was not about marriage. Here's how we know. It doesn't mean that it excludes marriage, but it's not exclusively about marriage. How do we know that? Because the very example that Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes is because the example used here is that of a son or a brother who struggles alone. Look, look at what he says. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There's a person without a companion, without even a son or brother. And though there is no end to all the struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. There's a bigger overarching uh, topic here. The issue is this. Loneliness, doing life alone, was never the thing that we were called to do. But doing, the opposite of doing life alone is not being married. The opposite of doing life alone is doing life <laughs> In relationship. That's what you're called to. You're called to life. Why do I have to say this? Because many times in our, what happens is, put it this way. We, there's this great podcast that walked through the history of marriage. So interesting. A lot of historians and psychologists were working through the ways in which people throughout centuries have treated marriage and dealt with marriage and understood marriage. And one of the things they brought up is, for, for the majority of, of, of the time of recorded history of man, people would get involved. Either marriage was, was a way to be able to preserve property. Marriage was more of an economic decision. It rarely was a romantic decision. But also, uh, the idea, once it became this uber-romantic thing, and by the way, the only people that used to be able to be, get married for love were really the wealthy folks, and usually wealthy men because they did the choosing. So, so for the longest time, the majority of people just got married because what was ever economically expedient. Hey, listen, uh, if you were a woman and you lived in a country where you couldn't own property, you better marry somebody that got property. If you were a woman and you were, and you, and you were uh, from a poor family, maybe your dad's dead, and so, and so now your, your, your mom is the only one that you have left, and your mom can't actually go out and work, and your mom can't actually get any kind of assistance anywhere, so she's poor, you're poor, you're hoping that you can meet somebody that can take care of both of you. Marriage was never about romance. The majority of time, marriage was not about romance. Really, it was only the last hundred years or so where the, the common man, the common woman can get married for love. And that's great. Awesome. Love that. But now, but now you, you almost have to step back and go, well, wait then. Here, this issue, what we see here is saying this. 
My whole goal in life then should not just be the, the, the end all be all is going to be marriage. Why? Because what they brought up in, this, in the, the history of this is what we often do now is I look to one person to satisfy things that relationship within community was supposed to satisfy. See, there was a time where I had uh, this friend, this friend, this friend, this friend. So you were able to process life within the community of like-minded people, people that loved you, people that wanted to see you grow, people that cared about you. Somehow somebody lied and said, now find all of that in one person. Here's what happens. You give with that one person, they can be great, but they're not everything. They can be great. And then you're like, but wait a minute. But wait, no, I... I, I, I thought you were going to do all these 17 things that my 17 friends did. And the sad thing is we tell people that. See, that's not, it was never meant, that's not what it's actually supposed to be. We've, you know, the psychologists here were talking about how, you know, we've got like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you've ever studied this, you've got these different things that you need. It starts at a low level, kind of basic security, so on and so forth, and you build on top of that. In general, in life, we have different people that fulfill those various needs, and, th and that's okay. That's what it means to be in a healthy community and healthy relationship. Somewhere along the line, somebody told us you're supposed to find all of that in one person. The scriptures never tell you that. Because we over-romanticized even marriage. Not that it shouldn't be romantic, because we have the freedom to do that now. But somehow we tried to take scripture and make that, hey, this is what marriage is supposed to be now. Now go out and find the one that's going to do everything the 17 used to do. The other thing we do with marriage is we anthropomorphize marriage. What do I mean by that? Whenever you see the word anthrop, anthrop simply means man or human, right? The anthropology, the study of men, the study of human nature, right? So when you look at what you do when you anthropomorphize something, you take something that's inanimate and you imbue it with human characteristics. We do that all the time. The universe was talking to me. <laughs> and the universe just keeps doing X, Y, and Z. <laughs> We do the same thing. You know, what marriage will do to you, what marriage will do for you, see, we're treating it like an individual human being. A, let me tell you, marriage, the universe, is not sentient. It does not have individual agency. It does not have the ability to make moral decisions. So when you're like, I want to get married, why? Because marriage will do this for me. That's a problem. If you think you need to get married to get to a place you need to be, you are way off. See, put it this way. Marriage is neither good or bad. Hear this, because I, I promise you're going to take this the kind of way. Marriage in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It is amoral. The agents that act therein make it good or bad. The institution itself is completely amoral. It, it, you you want to prove it? Okay. It, there are people who get married and are horrible for each other, cause all kinds of problems, have kids, everybody's abusive. Did marriage make them better or worse or what, what did it do? It just revealed what was already there. Sometimes, here's how you know when you've made marriage an idol. You want marriage to change you in a way only the Holy Spirit should. You want marriage to do something for you or you want a person to... It's interesting because you've turned marriage into that person. So here's what ends up happening. I've turned marriage into a person. So I talk about it like, okay, I, there are people who are single, lonely. They're so lonely. And I get it. So lonely that it's like, I just want to be married. So I will, I'm willing to overlook these red flags because marriage. I'm more committed to the idea of marriage than I feel comfortable being committed to this person. But I'm going to do it because marriage. 
See, I've made marriage a person, but that person will inevitably fail me. Then what? See, this is, this, this, this is what happens so easily. We start turning it into uh, this, this God. We start turning it into something that it's not. You were never called to marriage or singleness. You were called to relationship. You were called to relationship. Now, it's, it's, when you look at idolatry in marriage, okay, when people ask, okay, what does marriage idolatry look like? I have researched this. I've been in church most of my life. I've been to so many different marriage conferences, wedding conferences, all these, what's a wedding conference? Marriage conferences, all, all kinds of different kind of approaches to marriage. And here's what almost always comes up. Okay, what's idolatry in marriage? Idolatry in marriage is when you put anything, either A, you put anything above your spouse, or you put your spouse above God. Okay, those things are fine. It almost always ends there. It almost always ends there. Make sure you don't put anything before your spouse, and make sure you don't put your spouse above God. You know, those things are just very self-focused, right? Because that's what we do. Because marriage is supposed to be about me and my romance, my feelings, and make sure my relationship with God is tight, make sure my relationship with them is tight, make sure that nothing happens to get in the way of either of those things. But you leave out something. You leave out something. You see, it's not just about my relationship with God. It's not just about my relationship with my spouse. The question is, how does my marriage to you empower me to continue being in healthy relationships outside of you? You see, for a lot of us, for a lot of folks, marriage turns into a way to hide from other people. For a lot of folks, marriage becomes a way to be like, I can talk any way I want about them, but I got my husband and my wife at home to tell them what I just said. Because you're using marriage to hide from the relationships God's also called you to. See, that's what it means for your marriage to be an idol now. Oh, I can use my marriage now to hide my ugliness from the world. Or to justify my ugliness in the world. Another way that we do it is we'll say things because we love to be uber, uber romantic. We'll say things. I say this when I'm doing premarital counseling with couples all the time. They'll get in and they'll be like, you know, it's, it's just, we love each other, which is great. And we're so for each other, which is great. It's awesome. And it's just going to be like, like, it's just us against the world. That just sounds so precious. It's, it's us against the world. Or if you're single and you're like, I'm not with all that stuff. You know, maybe I saw some messed up things. or Maybe I dealt with some messed up things. Nothing. It's just me against the world. Right? I'm single, and I'm good, and I don't need any, anything else. I don't need anybody else. I've been hurt before, whatever. It's just me against the world. Here's where both of those things are wrong, and both of those things are idolatrous. If you're married, it should be us for the world, not against the world. If you're single, it should be me for the world, not against the world. So here's how you know that you've made it an idol. Because on some level, your marriage or your singleness is precluding you from engaging relationships. On some level. See, you should be in a situation where it's like, how can I be, if I'm going to get married, how do I get married to someone where I am empowered to already do what I should have already been doing? Being in relationships. If you're dating somebody and you're thinking about getting married, look at how they are with other people. No, just look at how they are with you. People are good actors. Watch how people are. Watch how people treat others. Watch how people treat people they don't like. Because you'll be super, you're like, oh, you know, he just cute. You know, he just be acting up because, you know, he don't like them, but it's okay. He's he just real funny until all of a sudden he turns that gun on you. Hey, man, you know, sometimes she just get, she just get wild out there. She just say some things. Substance starts coming out. It'd be cracking me up. I'd be telling her to calm down until she turns that on you. You see, you need to be aware. We need to be aware. How are you prone to engage 
others. Because if we're going to do this marriage thing and we're going to share this load together, then we're going to be able to know it's us for the world, which means how do we love others well together? How do we do this thing together? Marriage is an institution and a structure through which relationships can occur. It's not the only institution. And you know what? I'm going to say this because we say this as Christians often and I disagree with it. It's not the greatest institution. We say this like it's the greatest calling. It's the great. Jen brought this up last week. You realize what that does, right? Once you say this thing, this structure, this institution, regardless of the people that are taking part in it, this institution is the highest calling than everybody else who's single or divorced or in really hard situations in their marriage are now going, well, I guess I'm living a substandard life now because I can't live the highest calling, even though the scriptures never anywhere call it the highest calling, but we do. See, it's dangerous. And I say this because in every church, every church will have, we have people who have been hurt, who have been demolished, who have been destroyed in marriage, and they feel no safety in the church. Because these things don't get communicated in the church. Because we keep saying, this is the ideal, this is the ideal, this is the ideal. And you've got people that have been like, well, the ideal crushed me. This, this, I was in marriage, and what happened to me in marriage is completely destroyed. So now I'm left to think either A, I'm incapable of the ideal, or I've just been rejected by the ideal. So if all I hear, if the only thing I hear is marriage, 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 this is the highest calling, this is the highest calling, then there's no shock that there are people that are going, all right, if it's the highest calling, I suppose even if it's not wise, I'll just jump in. I suspect that one of the, one of the things that may explain why the divorce rate is as high, equal in the church as it is outside the church is because oftentimes the church does a great job of pressuring people to get married when they shouldn't. Because we've created it an idol, y'all. We've made it seem like that, almost like just add water, just add marriage, and things will just magically change. Here's the problem. Now that that, is, that idol has been built up in all of our minds, now we get into a marriage, and here's what happens. For some folks who are in a marriage that they probably are languishing in, marriages that are biblically are breaking them, they have, however you view grounds to leave or what have you, they are broken, they are abused, they are dealing with any number of issues, and now they feel like, because marriage, I can't. I can't do anything. I'm stuck. I, I just have to be a martyr here. I have to stay suffering here. Why? Because marriage is the ideal. So, you know, if I have a choice between being in the ideal and out of the ideal, I'll be in the ideal and suffer. And that's about the only advice that they'll get from people in the church. Well, you know, just, just keep praying. Well, you know, just keep, especially, I say this, some of you guys know my story. I say this as a person who uh, was raised in horrific domestic abuse and the types of things that church folk would say to my mother when things would happen. The type of things that they would do to pressure her to stay in damaging environments is, well, you know, you just got to pray. Well, you know, you just got to trust God. Because there's this idea, again, because marriage, that means therefore God. But that's actually not how it works. So now you're sitting there and you're like, well, you know, if, okay, this part, he hit you, but you just got to just gotta pray. You just got to pray for him. Okay, I get it. She's done these things that have just crushed your heart, but just... But just pray for her and just, watch, and just let the spirit break her. 
I grew up in a church where uh, if you demonstrated certain spiritual gifts, then as long as they heard you exercise that gift, you could do anything else. They would go, well, we know the Holy Spirit's in them, so just let them work on them on their own. <laughs> because, again, what ends up happening is that view of marriage removes real accountability, too. That's right. There's a quote from, I was thinking about whether or not I was going to read it, but I think I should because I feel like that this is something that really hits home for a lot of us. Specifically when there are people that we trust, people that we trust to give us wise counsel, to give us help, to give us uh, some type of advice when we are in hard situations, specifically hard, difficult, abusive marriages. This is from a pastor that was very well known, a pastor by the name of John Piper. And this is what he said uh, about what women should do if they are in uh, abusive situations. If her husband isn't requiring her to sin, but simply hurting her, then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season. She endures perhaps being smacked one night, and then she seeks help from the church. Y'all, when we create marriage as the ideal in and of itself, we've created an idol, and we've created an institution that, that will guarantee that will fail you. Guaranteed it will fail you. And the worst thing is, the worst time is when you get somebody who, praise the Lord, they actually got, they have a great marriage and things are great. This is not anti-marriage. Like we got, most people here are married. This is not about, all right, everybody, get rid of your marriage certificates. Like we're not saying that. <laughs> everybody pull off your rings and melt them down. Like we're not doing that. But what we are doing is basically saying, rethink your marriage even right now. Make sure that you're in it for the right reasons. If you're not, Lord, recalibrate my heart now. Lord, let me ask the question, like, hey, talking to spouse, hey, what does it look like for us to be for people instead of just us against them? Can, can, we, can we do this? If you're single and you're like, I desperately want to be married, let me tell you this. If you are not about relationships with other people now, you'll never be married, ready for marriage. You just won't. If all you do is sit and think about, oh, I'm not married, I'm, I'm not trying to, uh, oh, I promise, I'm not trying to minimize that. But if all you're going to, it's all I, 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 and there's no real sense of like, what does it mean for me to be for people? You're going to be a horrible spouse because you're going to be about you and you're going to assume that they're going to be about the same. And sadly, either you're going to be a horrible spouse or you're going to pick somebody that's going to be a horrible spouse or both of you will just be really bad together. And then you'll be like, I, I can't understand what happened because, you know, I, I was ready for marriage and I was so for marriage and I just couldn't wait to get married. And then we got married and all these other issues came that, you know what, a lot of those issues would have been worked out if you were in real relationships beforehand. Amen. Very, very dangerous when you're yes. like, you know, uh, this is why, okay, so somebody might get, get lucky, get fortunate, get blessed, whatever word you want to use, God is blessed so that you found the, a great person. That's awesome. But be very careful. Don't just walk up and go, see, look at us. See, people refer to that as survivor bias. See, you made it, and you just kind of lucked into something. That's great. I happened to be at this one place, and this, the, I just saw like the Shekinah glory just right over him, right when I saw him just flaring all about, and, and he came in, and he floated on a unicorn to me, and I was like, I must have him. Okay, that's great. That's wonderful. It just worked out that way for you. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that's in within me. However, for a lot of people, it don't work like that. So now when you're now you're not even commending, right, this biblical view of marriage, you're commending yours. That's right. Nobody needs your great example. They actually need to know where God's heart is. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we don't, so we can, we can share, hey, I can just share my story, but here's, you know, I know that's not typical, but here's really what needs to happen. What does it mean so that we are, have hearts that are oriented for people? What does it mean for us to have hearts that are oriented for relationships? Relationships should already be in place. Amen. This is why Paul can say what he says. First Corinthians 7, you see this. Uh, when he talks about mar- marriage, uh, he walks through instructions for married people, and he, and he starts walking through kind of what it means for husbands and wives, and we've preached that before. But in verse 17 of chapter 7, he says, let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. You look down to verse 24, he says, brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called. What is he saying? Now, I find this really interesting, by the way, because when you look even in the New Testament, you still have a lot of questions about marriage. You realize that in the New Testament, have you ever, have you ever wondered why there are really no examples of anybody's marriage in the New Testament? Frankly, the only example of somebody's marriage is two, maybe. One example is about a sp- spouse's lying and getting struck down by the Holy Spirit, like Ananias and Sapphira. The first example in the New Testament of marriage is two liars. Who, who dead now? <laughs> Forgive the grammar. They dead. So, for, so, so like you look at that, you look at that marriage and they're like, okay, they were, you know why? Because it was them against the world. They were lying to protect whatever it is that they wanted, right? The only other example of marriage we see is Aquila and Priscilla. This husband and wife team. And what were they? It's us for the world. They're out discipling people together. They're out working, helping meet the needs of people together. They were the people that spent time with Paul. They were the time that spent time with Apollos. They were the ones that came and said, we're going to use what we have to be able to build and pour into. It's not just us against the world. I think it's interesting, too, that we see some examples in marriage where you know for sure that there's this biblical leader who's married, and we hear nothing about their wife. You remember in, uh, in, in Acts? We're going to talk. You remember in Acts? Let's do this. You remember, you remember in Acts when, when all of a sudden they're at, they say they're in this room, right, that was owned by Peter's mother-in-law. Peter was married. We hear not another word about what that marriage was like. Don't know why. There's, I mean, a whole lot of theories as to why. There's a lot of theories that wonder if Paul may have been married. Why? Because you wouldn't be called a rabbi unless you were married. They typically would not uh, refer to you as a rabbi unless you were married. Some wonder if he had been divorced. We don't know. Maybe he got divorced after he became a believer. She wasn't with it. We don't know. But ultimately, when Paul says this, he's, he's speaking probably from a very personal place. Wherever you are, if you feel like you need to be married to get to that next level, you don't understand marriage. If you think that the goal is, I can't get to that next place unless I'm married, you're missing it. If anything, marriage should be an enhancement of what's already there. It should not be this, now it's the creation of what was never there. Doesn't mean it can't happen that way, but that's not why you get into it. That's just God's grace and mercy if it happens. But ultimately, when we get married, it should be the expression of what's already there. Hey, I've all, you know, I want to live a life where I can pour myself out for people, and I, and I do it imperfectly, but I'm able to do that. I see that you do the same. We got all these other things that we're attracted to and all these things that we like about each other, but I want us to be able to do this together. This is how we know. If the, but listen, this is why, whether you're married or whether you're single, if you're going to live as you are called, then that just means, Lord, what have you called me to? You've called me to love you, my neighbor, be able to steward creation. That's what you call me to do. 
So if there's a problem that you have with loving your neighbor, getting married won't help you with that. It won't help you with that. And in some ways, it'll help enable you to keep not loving your neighbor well. So what'll happen. You'll find somebody that would just tolerate these things because they just love you and you're just so cute. And so they'll just continue to enable you and be like, babe, you're right, they don't get you. Go ahead and cuss them out again. <laughs> That's what idolatry in marriage actually looks like. Because we've made marriage into something else. In other words, I've made marriage into a way in which I, I've made marriage into my self-help gospel. Marriage is for me. I get married because I want to be made to feel a certain way. This is where even unhealthy marriages start to function, right? I want to be married in such a way because I expect to be made to feel this way. And if I'm not being made to, forget about whether or not people are sinning against. That's a whole different conversation. But I got married because I wanted to be made to feel this way. And I'm not being made to feel this way. This is why we can a lot of times haphazardly just walk out of marriages too when we probably shouldn't. Because marriage was already idolatrous. And I'll close with this. When you think through marriage, you think through marriage, and you think through the examples in Scripture, the one example in the New Testament that we see, Paul brings it up, this mystery of marriage. He talks about, yes, we see in Genesis 2, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and they become one flesh. But Paul says, even that is a mystery. Paul says that's a mystery. Why? He starts to break it down even more, and he says, marriage is this picture of Christ and the church. And we'll say that. We'll say it at weddings. We'll say that we believe that. But when you step back and think through what that means, Jesus is the perfect example of both the person who is single giving himself for the other, but then they also cast him as one that's marrying the other. See, Jesus is the groom. We as the church are the bride. So if Jesus models, he says, listen, I'm going to give myself, not against the world, but for the world. And then I'm rescuing you, saving you, inviting you in to love others the way I've loved you. So if you've been loved radically by Jesus in this way, then whether you're single or whether you're married, nothing should stop you from loving in this way. Marriage won't help you get there. This is where we need to challenge ourselves. Where is God? What is marriage really? How do we love with the love that Jesus loves us? So as you think about this, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're divorced, whether you're separated, whether you're dealing with hard, hard things, my prayer is that we would not be a people that has this over-idealized view of marriage, this idolatrous view of marriage, because you don't realize how many people get hurt when we do this. My prayer is that we actually start to see each other be able to be in real relationship with each other. Married folks, if you've got single people that want to be married, we should be in relationship. We should be sitting there talking and saying, hey, and, and listen, if you're married or if you're single, share your life. Share that. Don't fall under this idea that it's my job to, pre to present a perfect marriage to somebody. Amen. And I think that one of the things that we can maybe start to do is say, I, I'm going to do this not so that I can just feel so good about myself for sharing. I love my family so much that I want to share my life with you. That's what should be our, mo our motive. I love my family so much that I want to share my life with you. Why? Because Jesus loved his bride so much that he shared his life with us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, it's so easy for us to remake uh, things in our own image. It's so easy for us to seek after the things that we think will make us happy and we ignore the things you've called us to that will bring us lasting joy. God, I pray that as we think through, pray through, live through what it means, whether we're single, married, divorced, separated, hurting, uh, joyous. God, I pray that even in all those emotional reactions that we would answer the question, what does it mean to be for you and to be for others? God, I pray that we would deeply seek out relationships with each other, that we would not allow maybe our views or our own idolatrous ways of seeing relationships. God, I pray that wouldn't keep us from each other. Father, if we're single and we have this commitment to singleness, God, I pray that our singleness would not be the idol. I pray that the reasons for which we stay single are not rooted in idolatry. And God, in the same way, I pray that the reasons we get married would not be rooted in idolatry. God, I pray that the reasons we might choose to leave a marriage not be rooted in idolatry. And Father, also, I pray that the reasons we choose to stay in a marriage would not be rooted in idolatry. God, we desperately want to get your word, your spirit, your heart, so that we are not remaking marriage in our own image. God, I pray that you would do this. Not so that we can just feel great about our marriages or our singleness, but God, I pray that you would do this so that we indeed would truly love each other, truly be in relationship with each other. God, I pray that we would be there to lift and bear burdens together. That we would be there to bring comfort and solitude and protection for each other. God, ultimately, I pray that like you, we would be remade into people that are for the world and not against it. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to this table, this is the ultimate picture of relationship. This is what we say when we are proclaiming what we, what we say we believe. When we say that uh, I believe that, that I'm a part of this family of God. I, I believe in the sacrifice that Jesus has done for me. What are we ultimately saying? We're not just saying I'm so thankful for what Jesus did for me singularly. We are thankful for that. But ultimately, we're saying, I'm so thankful for what Jesus has done for this family, what Jesus has done, not only for me, he saved me, but he saved my brother and my sister. And so because he saved us all, he's called us into relationship together, which means that when I come, I come down. And yes, I come with bearing the weight of my sin and bearing the weight of whatever it is that's in my heart, ways that I have not emulated him well, ways in which my, my ability to image him well have been hampered by my own sin. And I'm broken by that. And I bring a heart of contrition there. But I'm also broken by all the ways that my brokenness has affected my ability to relate to my brother and my sister. If I'm married, I've seen the brokenness, the ways in which it's affected my ability to relate to my husband or my wife. If I'm single, the ways in which it's been difficult for me to relate to my brother and my sister here. You see, this is a table of common unity. We have to have this in common. We don't come to this table to run from each other. We don't come from this table to hide from each other. We come to this table because we have been seen, loved, reconciled by a holy God. And we come to this table because we realize he's reconciled us not just to himself, but to each other. If this is where your heart is, if this is how you engage who God is, and this is how you engage his church and his people and what your relationship looks like, then this table's for you. If this is not where you are, if you're kind of like, you know what, I, I just don't know that I, 
that I believe this. I don't know that this is true for me. I don't know that, you know, the ways in which I've chosen to see marriage or singleness, it might be idolatrous, but I'm, I'm just okay with that. Or I just don't see that. Then let this time pass. Paul tells us, he tells us, uh, he reminds us of what Jesus said, that we should examine ourselves to make sure that we are not taking this unworthily. What does it mean to take this unworthily? Yes, if I have unrepentant sin, I got to do business, but it doesn't stop there. If somehow, on some level, my ability to love my sister or to love my brother has been hampered by any form of idolatry, maybe the way I view marriage or singleness, maybe something else, then stop. Take time and say, Lord, do work on my heart. Give me a heart of repentance. It may not be all fixed right now, but give me a heart of contrition, a brokenness, desperately wanting to be reconciled, and then come and partake. As our volunteers come, I want to remind you that we do communion here by the process of intinction. And so what that means is you'll come down the middle aisle. If you're on the side, you'll just move your way to the middle aisle and walk down and take a piece of gluten-free bread, dip it in wine or juice as you see fit. The wine will be on your right, the juice will be on your left. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for the Passover meal. And he took the bread, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. And do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup. This is interesting. You think about what Jesus is doing here at this table. And he's looking out at a bunch of sinners just like us. A bunch of people that are trusting in all the wrong things. Those of us that have trusted in marriage to, to change us and sanctify us in ways that only he can. And he looks out and he says, your sanctification is not going to be in marriage or your singleness. It's not going to be in your race or in your status. It's not going to be in where you live. It's not going to be in whatever creed that you have. This is my blood poured out for the remission of sins. The blood of a new covenant. Take and drink of it and do this in remembrance of me. What Paul tells us is that every single time we do this, we do this to proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. What we're, let's be consistent here. What we're saying is, God, I realize that, yes, I'm proclaiming that this is where my only hope is, but I'm also confessing that I've tried to find hope elsewhere. I'm confessing that I've, I've tried to lean on other things to bring me real completion. I've, I thought that marriage would complete me, but I'm realizing that it's not able to do that. You are the only one that does that. When we come and do this, we come with a heart of brokenness and we come with a heart of joy, knowing that, yes, I'm broken, but he assures me that I'm pardoned. He assures me that he is faithful and just to forgive my sins. So any place where you feel broken, praise the Lord for his conviction. Come, be reminded, taste, and see that our Lord is indeed good. Let's eat together.